Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to John chapter 6, I wanted to say before we jump into the text, um, we occasionally, at least once or twice a year, we run a course here called Christianity Explored. It's a seven-week course that meets in a home with a, with a meal, and uh, we look through the Gospel of Mark using these videos. And uh, I've had a few people ask me about it recently, said they have some friends they'd like to bring. We weren't going to run it till the new year, but I'm thinking about starting it up earlier than that. If you have a friend that you think might want to come along, is curious about Christianity, uh, it's a great course, really non-threatening. Just get to have a meal and look at the person of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark through these videos. Let me know. Come and talk to me, because if we just get three or four that are interested, I'd love to start it up. So we're at John chapter 6. If you're new with us, we've been working through uh, this book. You might be thinking, when you saw the, the two readings that today that, are, that form the, the rather large text for this morning, you might be thinking, you know, that's, that's a lot. I, I wonder what Kerry's going to do with this and how he's going to fit it all into one sermon. And the answer is, it is a lot, it is a complex section, uh, but that's okay because the sermon is really long. So <laughs> it's not a problem. No, actually, I will try to get us out of here in time, uh, but I did choose this text intentionally. Um, it is long, but I think all the parts in it are important and they hold together. Sometimes we break the, the scriptures down into really small bits, and that, that can be nice, but it's easy to lose the tree, you know, because we're focused in on, on a leaf. And uh, John's gospel does a lot of teaching in these, these bigger sections. Uh, these, these stories here, we have the feeding of the 5,000, we have the walking on the water, and then we have this sermon, the bread of life sermon. Um, they're supposed to be understood together. One technique that's used throughout the Gospels uh, for teaching, I like to call the uh, kind of the um, children's storybook model of teaching, where you have on one page of the book the explanation, say let's Maybe it says C-A-T, cat. And then the other side of the book, there's a picture of a cat. Explanation, illustration. Turn the page, D-O-G, dog. Oh, a dog. Explanation, illustration. The scriptures, the gospels especially, the writers use this a lot. Where we have these explanations, these discourses by Jesus. Then we have these illustrations, these physical illustrations in life of what he's teaching. It's kind of how this section holds together today. We saw this, interestingly, we saw this technique employed in chapter 5 where you had the, the healing of the man who had been crippled for 38 years and Jesus says to him, get up, and he rises up into new health and life. And then as you read through the discourse, Jesus explains that he's going to call us all when he comes back to rise up, to get up to new life. So that's what we have here, again, in chapter 6. So what I want us to do to kind of hold everything together is we're going to take a quick summary tour through the heart of this text, right into the heart, to the discourse, and then sort of work our way back out um, doing the kind of the cat-cat thing to understand it. So as we enter chapter 6, we are reminded that Jesus is getting mobbed because he's been healing the sick. 
as you would if you could really heal the sick. Everybody is coming to find Jesus. And it gets a little overwhelming. And as a consequence, Jesus crosses the sea and goes up on a mountain into a fairly remote area to get away and have some time with his disciples. But the crowd follows, thousands of them. And at the end of the day, Jesus, looking at the crowd, poses a question of food. We see it in verse eyes, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And kind of answering uh, Jesus' question, Andrew, who always uh, wants to help, he volunteers somebody's lunch, right? He says, oh, hey, this guy over here, he, he has some lunch. He has uh, five loaves and two fish. So Jesus takes this meager uh, meal, and he sits down, and, and he feeds them all. And he doesn't just break it up into 5,000 little, little teeny pieces and have a communion moment. He actually feeds them all to the full. It's this incredible miracle. And the crowd literally kind of, they go wild. They want to take him by force and make him king. But Jesus knows this, and he, he slips away, heads up a mountain, and comes down in the middle of the night, and then does an amazing thing. He walks across the stormy Sea of Galilee and joins his frightened disciples in the boat and brings them to safety, to dry land. But they haven't gotten away. The crowd is not far behind. They're not going to let Jesus get away that easy, and they track him down the next day. And this is where we're going to kind of enter into our text and work our way out. So, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So, then, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, this crowd, they're, they're on to something about Jesus. They, they say it in verse 14 after he does the, the miracle of, of, of the feeding. They say, oh, isn't this... The, uh, the prophet who is to come into the world. They remember Deuteronomy 18.15, the prophecy about another prophet who will come, who will be like Moses, but even greater. And he will come in the future and lead them as Moses did. He's supposed to come and, 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 and be their savior, and they're supposed to listen to him if you read Deuteronomy 18.15. So they put it together that, wait a minute, Moses provided manna in the wilderness for our forefathers. And so now Jesus, in the same way, is feeding them in the wilderness. 
He just might be this Mosaic Savior prophet. So what do they do? Do they humbly listen to him? Do they look to him for the the salvation that he intends to bring, the, the spiritual rescue? No, in fact... If you notice in the reading, they they kind of ignore what he has to say about their shallow motives, just wanting to have their bellies filled, and about their lack of faith. And they ignore that, and they just try to squeeze him for more bread. Do you see that? They don't really see the, the sign of the bread. They don't see what it's about. They just see bread, and they want more. Look at, look at verse 29 again with me. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? He's already done a wonderful sign, feeding the 5,000. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What further sign can you perform, Jesus? And they throw out this comparison. Our fathers, they ate the bread from heaven. You know, Moses made it rain, what, for 40 years? The manna? I mean, the one-day feeding was nice, but maybe you could do this daily manna thing. That They want more. And, and they'll make him king. So Jesus, uh, he responds by uh, giving them more. He gives them way more. Look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Doesn't it remind you of the woman at the well? Sir, give me this water. You see, Jesus says to them, look, you, you have it half right because not only am I, I, I say you only have it half right because not only am I the predicted Moses-like prophet who can bring you bread, bread from heaven, but I am that bread. And I am greater than any manna in the desert. I am the bread of life. You see, again, Jesus is is kind of fulfilling or overfilling all that the laws of Moses is about. This is what John has been showing us, if you've been with us throughout the book. You know, the, the, the Torah contains the written word of God, but we're told at the very beginning of this book that he, Jesus, is the word of God incarnate. The Torah contains the sacrifice, sacrificial system for sin, the sacrifices to be made, but Jesus is introduced to us in this book as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Torah contains the ceremonial purification Laws about the jars to be filled with cleansing water, but Jesus is the new wine that fills them to the full, the cleansing water welling up to life. This is what we've seen in these early chapters. 
The Torah contains the laws about the Sabbath, but Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath who brings true rest. And now we see Jesus as the ultimate bread from God that kind of blows the Old Testament manna out of the water. He is the very bread of life. And this text kind of tells us with the stories and the way it's laid out about the nature of him as this bread. Two wonderful things of the bread of life if we will partake of him. And the first is simply that this bread brings satisfaction. Spring bread of life brings real satisfaction in this life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Of course, as with the woman of the well, he is, he's speaking spiritually, right? He's not speaking about physical hunger or physical thirst. Isaiah 55 actually talks about the one who will come, who will bring such satisfaction. You go read it, just the first few verses, it's wonderful. You see, there is an assumption here, and in all the Bible, that people of this broken world have a core emptiness inside them. And thus there's this inner yearning that is beyond any physical appetite or emotional longing. It's a hunger at at the core of our being that aches to be satisfied. And the thing is, we all know this is true. I don't have to make a case for this or explaining it at all, really. If you're sitting here and you're breathing, you know this is true. You felt it. It's in you. Maybe you feel it right now. And the need to to feel it, to try to satisfy it, is what drives people in life. It's what drives the the rock star to go after more and more and more, but they can't get no satisfaction. It's what drives people from spouse to spouse to spouse, like the woman at the well. It's what drives the midlife crisis where people chuck everything and start anew to try to find what they've missed. It's what drives the escapism of excessive gaming and binge movie watching and living at the gym. It's all about trying to fill that emptiness. It's what drives those who are always seeking a new religious experience, going from, you know, different spiritual retreats and flitting into Buddhism and Baha'i and Kabbalah and Christianity and back again. It's what's behind all the numbing of drugs and alcohol and partying to try to not feel that void. Jesus says, not only can I feed that heart appetite, I can put an end to it. I can feel it to the full. 
And he demonstrates it here. He gives us a picture. This is the cat-cat moment. This is the teaching. And now he's going to give us an illustration. We've already seen it. Look at verses 10 to 13 again with me. Jesus said, have the people sit down, these people that have come hungry. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. I mean, there you have the picture, right? Thousands of people come hungry and they are stuffed to the gills. It says they are filled up in the language, in the creek. They're full, laying on the grassy hillsides with baskets of leftover collected bread. Twelve baskets. They had five loaves. Somehow they had twelve baskets of leftovers. That's how you know that it wasn't just a breaking a little bit of the bread. Does this mean that, that Christians... People who've, who've come to Jesus will no longer have any spiritual hunger in their lives? No. But it does mean that, that we found the bread, the wellspring of life, the place where we can continually come and be satisfied as we come to Jesus. We can partake daily as we trust in him until that final day of perfect satiation when we stand with Jesus in glory. It's pictured in Revelation 7.14 as every believer, having been washed in the blood of the Lamb, stands before the throne of God and it's proclaimed, never again will they hunger, never will they thirst. And here's the thing. Only Jesus can do this. Only he can, can fill us, can bring that satisfaction to that inner longing in our souls. Other spiritualities, despite what they promise, they can't do it. Buddhism, Scientology, Kabbalah, whatever, they can't ultimately deal with our spiritual hunger. To see why, all we need to do is reflect again on this feeding miracle and realize that what we see here with Jesus doing this is a, is a very unique event, a creative event. You see, as much as liberal scholars try to downplay this miracle here by explaining it as a big share fest where the little boy shares his lunch and everybody breaks a piece off and passes it and everybody is happy on this big sharing day. That's not what it's about. That's not what happened. What happened is a unique miracle. Jesus isn't healing. He isn't restoring or controlling something, or casting out demons. He is creating here. 
John already told us back in chapter 1 that Jesus as the word was the very agent of all creation from the beginning. Everything that was created was created through him. He made it and us. And here Jesus is at it again. He's making bread out of nothing. Yes, he started with some loaves and fish, but he didn't just stretch them out. He made more. There's 5,000 men here. Well, there's actually a lot more than that. They counted the men. So you had women and children and what? 20,000? Jesus, by his very will, was just, you know, creating bread. He was making the molecules and the protons and the neutrons and the matter. He was making the bread. You ever made something from scratch? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty awesome. Think about how fresh this would be. This is fresh bread. I wonder if it was hot. What we have here is a picture of Jesus, the creator God of our universe, feeding his creation. This is why only Jesus can satisfy your deepest inner yearning because he made you. He's our creator. No prophet or holy man or philosopher did that. And Moses didn't even get close. He didn't even give the bread. I mean, God gave it. See, this relates to the very core problem of all humanity that we find from the beginning of our Bibles. We are made by our God in his image, our, our creator, to know him, to depend on him, to be in relationship in him, with him. That's what we're made for. Think about a little newborn baby. My, my wife just showed me a video this week of a little baby who's just born. And in the hospital there, the baby's away from its mother, I don't know, 10, 15 feet, screaming, going crazy. And the nurse brings the baby over to his mother's face. And the baby just calms right down, puts his head up against his mother. This is, this is where he's come from. This is the place. That, she's the one who... He literally is nourished by for life. That's what we were made for. That's who we are to our Father. We literally need him to live. You see, we've been separated from our creator, Father, by our sin. And the emptiness is in us deep. No satisfaction, no nourishment, no life. We're striving, we're struggling. Only in Jesus, our creator, can we find real satisfying life. And more than that, more than this life being that satisfaction to our souls, note that this life here is, is an enduring life. Look at verse 37 with me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, not only does coming to Jesus, the true bread of life, and believing in him bring a satisfying life, now it brings a life that will be raised up then. A life that will make it through everything to the end and be raised up. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never, will never be cast out. He says, it is the Father's will that he should lose nothing of all that the Father has given him. And look what it says at the, at the end of verse, uh, look, at, look at verse 48. For, start at 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You see, this is a word of, of perseverance, of assurance, of preservation. No matter what life may bring our way, for all those who've believed in Jesus, the true bread, we will live. He will bring us through to the end, raise us up. We've already been shown a, a spiritual picture of this, haven't we? Again, it's the, he's given us the explanation, and we've already seen the illustration. Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum to see to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There Jesus' followers are, his believers, on the rough seas. We know from uh, Matthew's gospel, it was, there was strong headwind. The, the waves were battering the boat. That's why they'd been rowing for hours and not getting anywhere. But Jesus is there. And he's in control. Even when he seems far off on the shore. And he comes to them across the sea, miraculously. And note that the instance that he's in the boat is the same instance that they reach their safe, safe haven. Immediately, the boat was at the land. You see, having the bread of life that satisfies, guarantees our eternal destination as if we're already there, believers. He will raise us up on the last day. And if you think I'm kind of stretching this spiritually, the significance of this event, consider how the, the original Jewish readers of this text would have understood this. 
these people who know their Old Testaments. They knew Psalm 65 that speaks of God as being the one who stills the, the storming and raging seas. They'd also, also probably remembered Psalm 107 about the merchants of the sea who were caught in the storm until they cried out. Let me quote what it says in Psalm 107, 28 to 31. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work to the children of men. So here we have the Lord himself calming the seas and bringing the new people of God, his disciples, those who follow him by faith, safely to their destination. See, this means that those who receive the bread of life not only have found satisfaction now, but they have a life that will endure through all things until they're brought safely home. And that's, that's peace, real abiding peace. I once, once asked a, a friend who had recently become a, a Christian what had changed in her life, you know, kind of the, the effects of her new faith in Jesus. And without hesitation, she said, peace. She could not believe that the peace she now had. Now, as we kind of put it all together, now that we've kind of done the cat-cat thing, we see that Jesus, as our creator God and master over all things, is the only true bread of life that can satisfy our inner yearning and bring us peace and real life forever now. And thus there's one very primary and basic application in this text that we must not miss. This is how we should respond. This is it. Look at verse 26 with me. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Stop pursuing other useless bread. Stop going after the perishables of this life to fill your inner spiritual need. Now, I want to say this to everybody, but especially to the young people that are here in this crowd, some of you teenagers and young adults, because you guys are the most susceptible to this big lie of our world. It's the lie of self-fulfillment. It's the basic idea that, if you, that you can be filled full, satisfied by yourself. You can do it. That somehow, by your pursuits, you will eventually be satisfied. If you believe in yourself and you work hard, you can get there. It's easy to believe when you're young because you're kind of just getting started trying. 
high school life doesn't seem all that satisfying, but it could be better next year if you, you know, make the team. And college is coming, and it's going to be way better if I can just get into that program or this. If I just had a girlfriend, then things would be great. If I just had my own place, if I, I just had my, a, a new job and some financial security, if I could just find that right person. These are all great things. But if you're trying to satisfy your soul yearning with them, you will only be disappointed and frustrated and distracted from the true bread of life. We all, whatever age, must stop pursuing perishable things, the things of this world. It doesn't matter if it's relationships or a retirement package. They don't work. And if you consider yourself a Christian or at least religious, I want you to notice something about this scene. And that is, how are the people in the text pursuing the perishable things? Where are they going to try to get the perishable thing? They're going to Jesus. These people aren't merely, uh, you know, pursuing perishable things. They're pursuing Jesus to get them, to get the bread, to fill their bellies. They are pursuing the creator God who has eternal satisfaction in life to satisfy worldly appetites. It looks religious. They're going after Jesus. I think our, our church today is, is full of this kind of pursuit. I remember a Christian businessman saying to me that the great thing about being a Christian was that he knew that if he stuck with Jesus, Jesus would dial him in. He was talking about his business pursuits, referring to financial success, Jesus, the key to his prosperity. It's pathetic. It's such a small view of who Jesus is and what he has for us. My friends, let's not come to Jesus for less than he is. Let's not come to him for for candy when he's offering himself the very bread of life. If you've had enough of, of the aching hunger in your soul that emptiness, and you're sick of, of trying to stuff it full of things that never satisfy. If you want a satisfaction deeper than your fleshly appetites, if you want peace in your soul that's beyond circumstance, if you want life that never ends, then receive the bread of life. How? Verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Put your faith in the one who created you, 
the one who controls the storms, the one who died for you. That's what we're going to see in the second half of this sermon on the bread of life next week. Ask him to forgive you. Trust him in total dependence like a creator, a creature feeding out of the very hand of its creator. And you will receive eternal life. Real satisfaction. And you'll be raised up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, our very sustenance, our life. We pray now as we come to the table this morning, we'll remember his life given for ours and rest in him and be satisfied. Amen.